Welcome to Rights Conversations, a policy and legal advocacy center podcast series focused on the subject of human rights. So I would start by um, referring to the constitution, the 1999 constitution, which is the ground law in Nigeria. So section 33 of the 1999 constitution guarantees the right to life. And um, that right can only be taken away by by, by the courts, with by by the courts. Um, we also have um, Section 34 of the 1999 Constitution that provides for the right to dignity of human person, and it really just basically says how everyone's dignity is to be uh, preserved, um, and it's not to be taken away. Um, in, um, in areas of torture, people should not have to go through torture and what have you. Um, so we also have Section 35 of the 1999 Constitution that provides for the right to personal liberty and Section 36 that provides for the right to dignity, um, the right to fair hearing. Um, I mean, the Constitution is a broad norm, but Nigeria is also signatory to a couple of treaties, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, the International Convention of Civil and Political Rights, and the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. All of these rights are also provided for under this, cha- under this treaty that Nigeria is a signatory to. Um, specifically for criminal justice, we have the Administration of Criminal Justice Act. Um, we have the Police Act, and then we have um, the various, there are several other laws, um, like the EFCC Act and other laws relating to criminal um, administration in Nigeria that provides for some of these rights that I mentioned. I will start with the right to life. I mean, the right to life is guaranteed for everyone, apart from when a court of competent jurisdiction takes it away. If if death penalty is issued, now, um, when you look at international law, mandatory death penalty is actually against international law. Um, And Nigeria currently practices mandatory death penalty, basically saying that if a person commits murder, for instance, without looking at the circumstances, what next, the the sentence is going to be death penalty. And um, even though Nigeria is a signatory to the um, international yeah, International Convention of Human and People's Rights, Article 6, we still practice mandatory death penalty. So I would say that's the first, um, that's the first violation to the right to life. There is also extrajudicial killings by the police. We hear of that every other day in the news and on different media spaces where people are just killed, you know, on the spot of the moment and what have you. So we have that for the right to life. Um, under the right to Dignity. Um, I mean, there, there, there's a plethora of cases. We have torture. I mean, we have incidents of torture by the police, and also incidents of torture behind bars in correctional facilities. Um, we have different incidents where we find people being subjected to dehumanizing and degrading treatment. In addition to that, I would also say the uh, awaiting trial syndrome can also fall under. Um, infraction and violation of the right to dignity and also the violation of the right to personal liberty and even the right to fair hearing. Currently, we have 70% of people in prison are awaiting trial. Um, Now, what that means is that they are incarcerated even though they have not been sentenced by a court of competent jurisdiction. And so that is actually against section um, 35 of the 1999 Constitution, the right to personal liberty. And, and we have that in the criminal justice system. In fact, it's one of the menace that has actually developed the system. And it's growing. Um, I remember, I mean, as far back as 2012, 
the numbers were about 65%, but you know, currently it's 70%. So, in spite of all the efforts being taken, that the number of awaiting trial inmates is actually increasing. Um, so, that's another violation. Um, I would also say, in relation to the right to fair hearing, is also the awaiting trial syndrome because we have people in, that are incarcerated that, I mean, when you hear their stories, you hear that they have never been to court. I mean, personally, I've handled a couple of cases like that. People with missing files, people whose cases were forgotten in prison, they've never got a day in court, you know, to hear their cases and all. So, I mean, we can go on and on about all the problems, but I think this is just um, an overview of some of the problems. Mob justice, jungle justice, I mean, it's called different things, lynching, we've seen a lot of those kind of cases where people just take the law into their own hands. And yes, even though, yes, I had mentioned that extrajudicial killing is mostly done by state actors, we find all of these mob killings. Um, first of all, it's the fact that nobody has a right to take the life of anyone. Um, even if somebody is caught in the commission of a crime, it's going to be, we are going to get ourselves into a state of anarchy if we all take laws into our own hands. So I think first of all, um, when, when, I mean, when you see this incident online or when you see it on the news, you find that most times it happens in areas where there are not too many educated persons. So I would say first of all, maybe the people don't know, they don't really understand the implication of what you're doing. Um, um, there are several factors like poverty, illiteracy, um, frustration, people just taking out their anger and all of that. So I would say, um, first of all, that it is um, in violation of the right to life. And secondly, that a lot of work needs to be done in creating awareness, right? A lot of work needs to be done in creating awareness for people to know that irrespective of whatever happens, you need to follow what the law says. And for most of these um, areas or these communities, uh, if the challenge is with getting a court or maybe getting um, a police station, they always have like traditional leaders or maybe like community leaders that they can hand over those people to. Maybe if someone is caught in the commission of the crime, you can easily hand over the person and then the community leaders will take it up from there. But basically that it is actually a violation of the right to life. People need to know that if you kill somebody because you think the person has committed a crime, by virtue of what the law says correctly in Nigeria, you will actually be killed because death penalty is still existing in Nigeria. So maybe that message needs to be passed across that you don't have a right to take another person's life. So I would start first of all by talking to like the, the NGO or like the CSO space that we need to keep creating more awareness. We need to we need to also hold the government accountable. I mean, that is not really for the NGO, it's for every one of us. Just like what happened in, I think, 2020, and, you know, there's just that awareness about what happened with, um, how the SARS, you know, keeps victimizing people, police brutality and what have you. Um, creating awareness, holding the government accountable. And I'm going to touch um, more on holding the government accountable because we are currently in a world where we start things and then we forget it. You know, something takes, our attention for about a week or two weeks and then next week something else comes up and then we forget it. We must have state power to demand, you know, our rights from the government. And in demanding our rights from the government, again, it takes different different activities, like it takes a multi-pronged approach. Some people need to maybe speak out on social media, speak out on, on online. Some people need to begin to engage their legislators. 
we are very, very good with talking about the government at the center, but we forget that we have re-elected new legislators into different House of Assemblies and you know the National Assembly. So we need to engage our legislators if we need to put out certain views or if we need to ask for certain laws to be amended to you know or implementation actually because when you look at the criminal justice laws holistically, Nigeria has a very, very robust criminal justice framework. Um, but the problem has been implementation, right? We, we need to engage the government at different tiers to implement these laws. Um, we also need to pro probably look at strategic litigation because, I mean, in the past that's something that has worked. Um, take up a particular case and see how we can follow through. Um, also, I would say engage international courts. Uh, I think it was last year or the year before the last when we had like a Twitter ban and, you know, NGOs went and engage the ECOWAS court and were able to get the court to speak to the issue and you know they said the Nigerian government acted ultra their power by banning Twitter. So there are different approaches to this thing. We can use one but everybody has to look see find their role, right? Everybody has to find their role. Um in in, in with respect to arbitrary detention, we need lawyers, more pro bono lawyers to provide legal aid because most of the people who are actually affected by these menace are actually poor people who cannot afford legal services. We also need to call, for instance, for the decriminalization of petty offenses. Again, that takes me to the place of implementation of the laws because when you currently in Nigeria, we have people who go to prison or who get arrested for very petty offenses, hawking, loitering, and all of that. Um, but then the Act Javaza, Adventure of Criminal Justice Act, has made uh, criminalizing minor offenses illegal. So what we need to do is basically ask for the implementation of what the law says, right? Ask for the implementation of, you know, every other related law relating to, uh, that, are, that is relating to the criminal challenges that we're facing, criminal justice challenges. So when you look at the criminal justice system, and there are three major actors, the police, the judiciary, and the prison. A lot of times, a lot of emphasis is being, a lot of conversation is being had about the police. I mean, the police is seen as the one who has caused the problem, and I'll get to that later. Now, the court, like you rightly said, is the one in charge of interpretation of this. Um, laws. Um, and like I, like I said rightly, um, we don't have a debt of criminal justice legislation in Nigeria. We actually have a very good one. But the problem has been with implementation. I think there is a need to focus on restorative justice in criminal justice delivery, you know. Or we currently have um, a judiciary system that most times, for instance, look at the punitive, uh, looks at um, punitive laws, laws that are more uh, sorry, sentences. Sentences that are more punitive than restorative. Um, we also have a judiciary that is that that has a backlog of cases. So, for instance, the AGJA has said a particular number of days is, is to be used to handle criminal cases. Well, a situation whereby, for instance, in a place like Abuja, a court has you know backlog of cases, lots of cases. You cannot expect them to do. Uh, you cannot expect them to do magic. So. In looking at the, where, how the judiciary comes in, there are several indices to it. One of them is finding ways to digitalize the court system. Currently, judges still take notes by hand. And I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've experienced like a court yeah, session, it takes a whole lot of time where the trial you know, has to go on and on and on um, like that. Um, so I mean, digitalization of the court system would help. Also, like I was saying earlier, in, including more restorative um, more restorative 
sentencing into their into into what they do. And I'm going to give an example. Currently, uh, we have a non-custodial system in Nigeria, which is fairly new, introduced by the Nigerian Correctional Service out of 2019. A situation whereby we have um, we have the judiciary often giving sentences that you have to get incarcerated, and then. I mean that that's, that increases overcrowding. Um, that increases overcrowding. We find people who commit petty offences and they are being sentenced to several years in prison, right? So all of all that has to come to being in looking at how the judiciary comes to play here. So I, I, I look at legal aid as the government aspect of legal aid and the other aspects which encompasses like the non-governmental organizations and other organizations that provide legal aid services. So the legal aid council by virtue of the law is the one that has the power to provide legal aid services in Nigeria, both civil and criminal cases. And then we also have organizations um, who provide access to justice, legal aid services. I, I know the NDA has a legal aid um, feeder, um, our organization, Go Behind Mass Africa, and a couple of other organizations are doing this. Now to the question on effectiveness. Um, I think to determine effectiveness, we have to look at what the statistics say or what um, what is on ground in terms of what are we saying. What is the aim of legal aid? Legal aid is to help the congested court system. It is to help ensure that everyone you know has a right to a lawyer, has a right to legal representation. So now, when you look at what's the reality, we find congestion increasing. We find the awaiting trial syndrome that I mentioned, seventy percent of people being increasing, and you know we find an imbalance in access to justice. A situation where someone who is a person of status has access to you know the the best lawyers, and then someone who doesn't have money, you know, doesn't have access to lawyers. And so, in rating the effectiveness, I would say that maybe we need to rethink or we need to look at how we're doing legal aid. Now, currently, legal aid is usually done at the point of the prison, and you know, you know, thank God we had gone through the, the link, the criminal justice link, from police to courts to prison. Now, the problem usually starts from the place of the police. It's at the place of the police that the police is the gateway to the system. And so, from the police, we have people that should be in the system, but we also have people that don't have any business being, being in the system. We have people, for instance, that have committed civil infractions, um, but then somehow maybe. Uh, the complainant knows somebody and then they have, someone has been arrested for, for not paying debt or, or something. I mean, not paying a debt or that's, that's a civil infraction, but then we, we bring them, we usually find cases like that in courts. So we have that. Um, we have cases of arbitrary arrest, we have cases, different kind of cases from the police. Maybe we should look at legal aid uh, as a, a system that's, that should start from the prison, from the police, and not waiting until we get to the prison. Because, I mean, even for us, that was something that we had to learn. Um, we started our work by providing free legal services to awaiting trial inmates. Um, but then, after about two or three years, we realized that we could continue this work for the next 20 years and nothing would end, nothing would um, change. I mean, we'll be able to help people get out of the system, people that should be in the system, but the supply side is not being dealt with. So, in terms of effectiveness of legal aid in Nigeria, I would say it's not been as effective because the number the numbers have been going up. 2012, 
it was 60, 65%, 2023 is 70%. And between this time, a lot of interventions have come in. So what happened? It means that those interventions have not been as effective as they should be. So maybe we need to rethink the way we do legal aid by starting from the supply side. Can we begin to work with the police to ensure that people that don't have any business in the system are diverted away from the system? Can we begin to look at non-custodial sanctions? Or even restorative justice. Restorative justice is that mechanism that basically says uh, if someone has committed a, a minor offence, we just try to um, create a process that the victim of the crime is taken care of. This, the, the person um, is probably subjected to non-custodial sanctions and the person gets out of the system. So, uh, yeah, my, the summary of my thoughts on that is that we can do more in terms of the way we do legal aid um, delivery in Nigeria. It's not been as effective as it should be. Yes, I, I think so. Uh, I mean, I work largely with the correctional system. So when the alteration was on in February, it felt like this is what we've been looking for, right? I mean, it's not without its own challenges, but when you look at it holistically, it's something that can predominantly help to address some of the issues that we, we, we've seen, like the jail breaks, the congestion, even the rehabilitation issue, because we, you know, the large, the main aim of the criminal justice system, and particularly the correctional system, is rehabilitation. 95% of everybody that goes through the system is going to come back to society. So we need to prepare for the fact that these guys will come out and we don't want them to go back to crime. Um, and we currently have high rates of recidivism. People go to prison and then they correct to the correctional system and they come back um, because, I mean, there's nothing to fall back to. Now, going back to the state law, um, to the, to the uh, question on, on state corrections, currently about 90% of offenders in prison are state offenders. When, you, when we talk about the number of awaiting trial inmates or we talk about the congestion, we find that most of the congestions is not spread across the country or is not spread across all the correctional facilities. What we find is that certain um, custodial centers, certain prisons are more congested than some. So you can go to a place like um, Kefi, Nasara for instance, and you find the old Kefi prison, just about 200 inmates, and the new Kefi prison, thousands of inmates. So when you look at that, you find that the state actually has more work to do, and has more work to do, um, because it's really hard for, for you to expect the federal government. We have 90% of people in prison as state offenders, but then the federal government is one feeding them. Over two billion naira goes to feeding inmates in a year, and we don't know how. We don't know if that's like the, the, the correct statistics. So. With the state corrections, I, I, I foresee that there will be a synergy between the federal and the states. Um, we can bring in things like public-private partnerships, like for instance in the US and other parts of the world, we have people who manage private, um, I mean there's public-private partnerships, you know, private individuals are able to work with the correctional system. We have things like industries in prison because, I mean, currently the inmates are idle. And so that's why they will go into the system and they will come out and there's nothing for them to fall back on. But imagine if, you know, now we are looking to have state corrections. With the state corrections, we can bring in private individuals to partner with the states and then we are able to institute in industries. You can get, I mean, inmates. Currently, we actually have inmates that, you know, produce things. Then we have like a market that people are able to buy that. I think it's something that is really, really great. Things like secure the security architecture, things like the issue of the jailbreak. You know, we, we the, I feel like the federal and the state partnership will actually go a very long way in, in strengthening correctional 
um, correctional institutions. And there's a lot of conversation that is currently ongoing concerning that, concerning the, the draft of a state model law for the various states, concerning the strategies, the models that the states are going to use and, and also, I mean, I think it's a good thing and it's something that would, should predominantly help um, correctional management. The other thing you can look at again is the data management, even the technology, in inclusion of technology into um, corrections and all of that. So I think it's a great one, it's innovative, and if it's properly implemented, it's a great long way in helping the system. Predominantly, we address human rights violations within the criminal justice system. So virtually everything that we've talked about today, from police brutality to issues of extrajudicial killings, but specifically within the correctional facility. So, you know, the, the, the awaiting trial syndrome is actually a human rights violation because these people are kept in prison, unending, even though they've not been sentenced to, uh, even if they, they've not been sentenced by a court of competent jurisdiction. So all the violations you can think of within the criminal justice system is what we want to address and how do we do this. Um, a, a core aspect of our work is providing legal assistance and legal aid to indigent pretrial detainees, vulnerable populations behind bars, juveniles in prison, women, incarcerated women, um, and also supporting building the capacity of correctional officers. We are also very big on integrating technology in our work. Um, and, and so how do we do that? We help to connect pro bono lawyers to indigent pretrial detainees. And then we also, we've also created a platform that allows top law firms, top companies, top organizations to do pro bono work through our platform. And then very recently, I mean, at the beginning of this year, we began to look at system strengthening. Just what I was saying earlier, that we can continue providing legal aid and nothing is going to, not much is going to change. But how do we now work with the criminal justice actors to ensure um, that these violations are, you know, these, these violations stop? So one of the major um, programs that we have right now is our police duty solicitor scheme, which basically send, which basically is us working with the police. We send pro bono lawyers to the police station and they work with the police and divert cases that don't have a business in the criminal justice system away from the system. Um, and so, I mean, in the past, that has, that, that has actually, we've, all, we've had like great impacts, you know, impact stories from organizations that have used the scheme and we're looking to see how we can scale that. So currently we've supported over 7,000 indigent trial detainees. We have over 200 lawyers, pro bono lawyers in our network and they've logged in about 700,000 hours of pro bono services. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but we are looking to scale in the coming days and we are scaling the technology, really. How, we're trying to see how, uh, because currently we are, we, our work is, 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 is currently in five states. Sorry, seven states. We added two states recently, but we're looking to see how we could scale to other parts of the country where our services are needed. And then finally, we are doing some very in-depth work on juveniles on death row. We had talked about death row, um, about death penalty at the beginning, and we actually currently have so many minors on death row in some parts of Nigeria, not some part of Nigeria. So we're doing a lot of work around that, just shining the light on it, and then just calling because it's a human rights abuse and just calling the attention of the government and relevant stakeholders to that. So, I mean, that's a summary of some of the things we're doing. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to summarize that into three. I'm just going to say three things. And um, the first one is people need to know their rights. And um, I mean, it's easy for me to think that everybody knows their rights. 
But when you see certain things happening, or when you hear people say certain things, you realize that people, even though they're educated, they don't really know what their rights are. So the first thing is to know their rights. And in addition to knowing the rights, I think some of us who know our rights need to take up the blood's work, in quotes, of helping people who don't know their rights, as in educating them or creating awareness about their rights. So that would mean maybe sharing this in their local languages, explaining it to them in ways that they, that, that they could understand, you know, whatever means that we can use. So that's the first thing, because you cannot protect human rights if you don't know what those rights are. The second one would be, we need to, so let me use the word, do human rights, like ensure that human rights are protected amongst ourselves. It's very easy for us to push the baton to the government and say, I mean, the government is the one, um, you know, legally expected to, to protect human rights by virtue of the constitution. But we also have to look inward and ensure that, I mean, around us, we are not, um, we're not, you know, um, violating people's human rights. We don't have somebody, for instance, living with us that is under slavery, under the guise of house help. <laughs> and we find that a lot, you know, we don't have the mob justice thing that you talked about that happens a lot in rural communities. So we have to, first of all, know our rights and then secondly, ensure that we are also protecting or doing, you know, and protecting people's rights. And then the final one is to demand for human rights or engage the government, right? Engage the government to protect human rights. Um, and so that would mean knowing which the different agencies that should that should carry out that should that should actually protect these rights. Continue speaking about it. I've often heard people say that you know people in the nonprofit space what they do is speak and talk. And I think at first I felt like oh yeah it looks like you know that's what's happening. But I just realized that we need to keep talking. Different approaches can be used, but in all of it we have to keep these topics at the front burner of the conversation. Because the moment we begin to look away and say, oh, we talked about that yesterday, what's the point? Then we are going to be shooting ourselves in the foot. Because even though um, our rights are not infringed on today, it doesn't mean that tomorrow something cannot happen. So basically, just to summarize, we need to know our rights, ensure that other people also know their rights. Um, secondly, we need to ensure that we are also protecting those rights for the people around us. Um, and we are speaking about it. And then finally, we need to demand that our human rights are protected. So that's it. This is Black's Right Conversations. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe and stay up to date with upcoming episodes. Ensure to follow Plaque across our social media platforms at Plaque NG.